Welcome to the Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. And today we're going to talk about the corn and soybean outlook in light of USDA's October crop production and world ag supply and demand estimates that were released on Friday afternoon, October 9th. And you know, Michael, uh, there was a bit of a surprise in the report. Um, they reduced the planted acreage estimate by a million acres to 91 million acres. That was un un unexpected. Um, they also reduced the harvested acreage by a million acres. That drops that number down to 82.5 million acres. A very small reduction in the yield, I think 178.4 bushels per acre instead of 178.5, so not much change there. But they did reduce the beginning stocks, the carryover from the 2019 crop year into the 2020 crop year by 250 million, 258 million bushels. So you put all that together and that's a pretty big uh, change in the supply picture for corn. Let's take a closer look at what was going on, on the production side. On production side, 14.9 billion bushels is their estimate for the 2020 crop. That's up dramatically, of course, compared to last year because of the acreage and yield problems we had last year. Last year's estimate was 13.62 billion bushels. That 14.9 is still the second largest corn crop on record. The largest was back in 2016 at 15.15 billion bushels. But to me, Michael, the, the interesting thing about that 2020 crop estimate is at 14.9, it wasn't too many months ago that you and I were talking about the possibility of seeing a corn crop of... Uh, approaching 16 billion bushels. Yeah, a, a rather large reduction here in the last two or three months. And and certainly from a supply standpoint, a very bullish news for corn. Yeah, that combination of a somewhat smaller production estimate largely coming out of the reduction in acreage, and you combine that with the reduction in the carryover coming in, and that really changes the corn supply picture. If you look at the total corn supply, which of course is the current uh, crop production plus the carryover estimate, uh, USDA's estimate comes out at 16.74 billion bushels. That's up from last year's 15.88. And still, as I indicated before, that's the second biggest number ever. I think back in 16 and, and 17, both, we were just under 17 billion bushels. So below those numbers. But the big uh, change here is the fact that relative to what we were expecting just a couple of months ago, uh, the 2020 corn supply is now down about 436 million bushels compared to uh, really where they were back in September. So really over just the course of a month, we've lost over 400 million bushels of expected supply. So that's really changed the picture quite a bit. Um, certainly a, a direction that we weren't anticipating earlier in the summer. If you look at the individual state yield estimates, I, I know, Michael, you took a closer look at that. That's kind of an interesting story in, a, in and of itself. Yes, yeah, so even though the uh, even though the U.S. yield was down 0.1 bushel, it's still it's still expected to be a record at 178.4. And the reason for that is several states are looking at records: uh, North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Indiana is expecting 189. A bushel uh, corn yields and 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 uh, Kentucky, just to name a few, uh, that are expecting record corn yields. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting as you look at the map. Uh, they've got some interesting things on there. So you know, Illinois, relative to a month ago, they brought down the yield estimate in Illinois and Iowa. Uh, they brought down Nebraska a little bit. They brought down South Dakota. So that 
kind of central to western part of the Corn Belt is the one that got hurt uh, partly by the storm that went through, the big wind storm the, back in August, and then also dry conditions, especially as you look at that western Corn Belt, right? Yes, that's definitely the case. Uh, western Corn Belt, uh, seeing some weakness from the previous month where the eastern Corn Belt uh, strength. Yeah. So if you look at USDA's uh, corn production estimate relative to what the trade was expecting coming in, it was within the range of estimates provided by the trade, uh, at least on the surveys that were coming out before the report was released, but it was on the low end. Um, you know, the range, I think, was almost on the high end, almost up near 15 billion bushels. The low end, I think there was one analyst at 14.6 billion bushels. USDA came in at 14.9. So they were skewed a little bit towards the low end. So a little bit of a surprise from the trade perspective, certainly from my perspective, I didn't think we'd see the numbers come down that hard, mainly because I didn't think we'd see that uh, reduction in acreage. Let's take a look at the demand side on the corn. Uh, they've reduced their product, projected ethanol usage uh, by down by 50 million bushels. They've also pulled down the feed usage forecast by 50 million bushels. Um, no change in their forecast for corn exports, but keep in mind that uh, uh, they were already about 31 or 32 percent above last year on the previous report. So they basically held steady with that. So that export forecast, I think, winds up being 31 percent above their estimate of what 2019 finally came in at. So um, you know, when you put all that together and then look at the ending stocks at the end of the 2020 marketing year, so projected ending stocks at the end of 2020 marketing year going into the 2021 crop season. Um, and then I like to always compare those ending stocks as a percentage of usage. It puts the 2020 number at 15%. Uh, that's slightly higher than last year, 14% last year, 16% two years ago. And truthfully, we've been bouncing around in that 14 to 16% range of ending stocks as a percentage of usage since the uh, 2016 crop year. But the interesting thing about that 15% is uh, that number was substantially higher just a couple months ago. In fact, back in September, that was at 17% of usage. And I think if you go back to August, it was at, I believe, about 19% of usage. So that's a substantial change, a substantial tightening in those ending stocks or projected ending stocks going into that 2021 marketing year. And, and uh, you know, largely unexpected, uh, particularly over these last few weeks. Yeah, definitely unexpected. It has, it has uh, caused some increase in the price forecast for corn uh, for the 2021 crop year. Yeah, so USDA did revise their marketing year average estimate uh, you know, last month, I think they were at 350. This month, they were at 360. So they bumped it up a dime. But of course, a month ago, they bumped it up, I think, 40 cents. So over the course of two months, they've pushed up the marketing year average forecast for the 2020 crop year by 50 cents a bushel. That's an almost unheard of uh, kind of a price change. We typically don't see that except in maybe in a severe drought year, which this was not. So that's a very unusual situation. And and again, I think has some implications, not only for what prices are going to wind up being, has some implications for government program payments, right? Yeah, certainly. You're looking at a 360 price. If that if that bears out, that would only be a dime uh, a PLC payment, a dime per bushel PLC payment, which is much smaller than what we were, we were thinking about a couple, a couple months ago when that projected price was 310. 
So, you know, there one of the questions I think always arises at this point, you know, what should we do with respect to storage? Are there some storage opportunities for corn uh, versus soybeans? And uh, our colleague Nathan Thompson took a look at that. And, and so what he did is he kind of projected out, um, you know, he made some assumptions about cost and he assumed if you're going to store uh, in on-farm storage that you had a cost of a penny per bushel per month. And then he assumed uh, that you were probably operating on borrowed capital. So he assumed that uh, the opportunity cost or the money that you had tied up in those corn inventories was probably worth about a 6% annual percentage rate. So when you do that, he kind of projected out, uh, he took a bid uh, from here in kind of West Central Indiana. I think uh, this was up near Delphi. And the cash bid, uh, I think Friday, uh, when we were doing the, the original webinar at 369, and then if you just add those costs on month by month, you know, your break even for that 369 in December turns into 372 in January, 375, and so on down the line until you get out to next July when your break even winds up being 392. So I think I want to clarify what that means. That 392 and that 369 currently, if your cost match the assumptions, which was the on-farm storage cost of a penny a bushel per month, and you're borrowing money at 6% annual interest rate, you'd be indifferent between those two. Those two prices would essentially be equivalent. You'd just be recovering your cost. So then the question is, well, how does that compare to uh, bids? And so he looked at some forward contract bids, again, from West Central Indiana, same location, uh, and as you look at it, uh, there look like there's some opportunities to improve returns. In fact, uh, clearly short-term storage looks like it might be beneficial. So if you look at um, really the gap between those projected uh, costs that break even and the bids that are available there, uh, the biggest gap turned out to be in, in January. So looking at the bids that he was looking at, uh, you know, Current cash bid of 369. December, they were bidding 379, so 10 cents higher. That was seven cents higher than um, the break even cost. In January, that bumped up to 391. And so that was actually 16 cents higher than the, the break even cost. So clearly, that shorter term storage uh, has some, some beneficial um, opportunities for farmers to think about uh, the marketplace and providing some incentive. Beyond that, there might be some opportunities as well, depending on how optimistic you get about the basis uh, farther into the storage season. So it looks like some opportunities for profitable storage on the corn side. If you look at the corn futures market, um, you know, it's kind of a classic carrying charge market, but it's not a full carrying charge market. I think uh, on Friday, uh, these futures were at 394 in March was six cents higher. May was four cents higher than the March. And then July was four cents higher than the May. So that's providing some incentive. And you combine that with some expected basis improvement, and that gives you your potential return to a storage hedge. So there's some opportunity there, but it does require, particularly as you look farther into the future, some optimism about where basis might actually wind up. And then, uh, you know, I want to encourage our listeners, if you're not already doing it, you should be tapping into the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's Crop Basis Tool. Uh, we update that uh, every Friday. So the, the basis tool reports basis on an average uh, basis for um, crop reporting districts. Uh, you, on the tool, you simply pick your state and then pick the county and then it determines which is the appropriate crop reporting district. 
And you can look at averages. You can look, uh, for example, in corn, it defaults to showing a three-year average basis versus the current year's basis. But you can pick any, any combination of years you want to look at from a historical perspective. Um, so on an average basis in that kind of uh, the north central part of uh, Indiana, basis was actually running a little bit below the three-year average. But in some other locations, basis is actually stronger. And one of the things we looked at uh, the other day was as you get closer to the Mississippi River, uh, those river terminals have stronger basis than, than, uh, than average. And I think part of what this is reflecting is this improvement in export demand that we're seeing. And that's really been a, a bump for any of the markets that are really keyed to the export channels. Uh, some of the interior markets, a little different story. In fact, the basis story in Indiana is kind of an interesting one. Last year, we had a very strong basis, especially in the eastern part of the state and the north central part of the state, where we lost so much corn acreage. Uh, that plus some weaker yields, that combination gave us a smaller corn supply in that part of the, of the corn belt uh, in an area where we have very strong demand for uh, going into ethanol plants and going into livestock feeding. This year, of course, ethanol demand is much weaker. Uh, yields are better. Acreage is much stronger. And as a result, we're seeing a much different basis pattern. So last year, Indiana and the Eastern Corn Belt in general kind of benefited from a very strong basis pattern. That's not the scenario this year. Uh, this year, it looks like the stronger basis levels will be farther west. Um, and one way to think about that is the basis levels last year were encouraging corn to move from west to east. This year, it looks like the basis levels are encouraging corn to move from east to west uh, to take advantage of those stronger export channels. So really an interesting situation. It just points out the need to pay attention to your local basis. And the crop basis tool on our website is a good way to do that, a pretty easy way to do that. And an easy way to compare basis levels as you move around the corn belt, which is pretty interesting. So... Michael, let's turn to the soybean side. How about if you kind of update us on what the USDA reported on soybeans? Yeah, I was I was somewhat surprised to see not only did corn acreage decline, soybean acreage declined too, uh, not quite as big, but but soybean acreage uh, was reduced 0.7 million and now stands at 83.1 million acres, and so reduction in soybean acres. Also, there was a reduction in beginning stocks for September 1 of 52 million bushels. Uh, both of those are are positive from a supply standpoint. Uh, unlike corn, there was no change in the U.S. yield estimates. We didn't have an adjustment there. But the acreage reduction in the smaller 19 crop carryover did tighten supplies. And this is extremely important because, as we've noted in, in past uh, webinars and podcasts, uh, soybeans were already starting to get a little bit uh, compared to corn. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So if you look at the total su uh, soybean supply estimate coming out of the report on Friday, uh, the two reports on Friday, the estimate for the 2020 crop year is 4.81 billion bushels. Um, that compares to a supply estimate, uh, which is a combination, of course, of the production estimate and the carryover from the, from the 2019 crop. That compares to 4.48 billion bushels last year and, and actually puts us up almost to where we were two years ago in 2018 when that number was at 4.88 billion bushels. But that's 100 million bushels below what we thought we were going to have just 30 days ago. And that's that's really the relevant factor, I think, for the marketplace. It's the change that's taken place over the last uh, 30 days in this case. And again, I think, Michael, you took a look at the state level yields. Those are kind of interesting uh, as well. 
Yeah, I want to point out again that uh, at 51.9, we're still looking at a record U.S. soybean yield. And it's a, it's a slightly different mix of states of uh, record yield, but some of the same states are in that list. Uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio, uh, North Carolina, Kentucky. And so some very strong yields again uh, in the northern Corn Belt, uh, particularly uh, Minnesota East and also in the eastern Corn Belt. Yeah, it was kind of interesting to me. They actually uh, bumped up the yield estimate for Iowa relative to last month, I think by, uh, oh, 3.7%, I think. And uh, the Illinois estimate came down by about the same percentage, I think 3.2%. So that was kind of interesting. Those two kind of offset each other almost. Uh, but that was kind of an interesting perspective. If you look at the production estimate uh, that USDA provided on Friday versus what the trade was expecting, it was closer to being in the middle of the road. If you look at the analyst estimates coming in, I think the analyst estimates ranged uh, from a production estimate of 4.35 billion bushels on the high end to a low of about uh, 4.19 or so. And USDA's estimate was pretty much in the middle of that range. So it wasn't as big a shock, maybe, as or surprise as what we saw on the corn side. Uh, but it was a tighter supply situation than I think almost everybody was expecting coming in. If you look at changes to the demand side of their soybean balance sheet, they projected an additional 75 million bushels in exports. And of course, that was the number everybody was focused on was what are what do you think is going to happen to exports, um, particularly vis-a-vis -vis what's, what's China going to do? Uh, no change in the soybean crush estimate. But you put all that together, you, the small or modest increase in exports, yeah, the tighter supply numbers, and all of a sudden soybean ending stocks as a percentage of total usage are now projected to be about 6% at the end of the 2020 marketing year going into the 2021 uh, harvest. I'm going to say that again, 6% ending stocks as a percentage of usage. And, and um, you know, a month ago, we were at 10%. Um, a month prior to that, we were up in the teens. Uh, if you go back to two years ago, of course, when we were really suffering from the loss of trade with China, uh, we were looking at a carryover estimate of 23% of uh, total usage. So, it's really changed dramatically. And I think, Michael, on a previous webinar, we talked about the fact that in the years when you see a pop in soybean prices, we usually get those ending stocks down below 10%. And uh, lo and behold, we're below we're, 10%. We're, we're there. And, and really, uh, we can't, I can't think of any uh, situation where we're going to pop above 10% again. I think we're already looking at really strong yields and, so, and some pretty good demand. And so we're probably going to stay below that 10%. And just to put that in perspective, uh, this is the lowest percentage since the 2014-2015 uh, crop years where we were close to 5% in terms of a stocks-to-use ratio. Yeah, we had an extended period of pretty tight soybean stocks starting in about uh, 2007 up through about 2015. And then we started increasing in 16 and, of course, in, and then peaked in 18. Uh, and we were we were going the right direction last year with the you know loss in acreage and, and uh, reduction in yields. Uh, but the tightening this uh, crop year, I think, particularly given the fact that we're having pretty good, well, as you pointed out, record yields in soybeans, um, is a surprise. And so, 
you know, USDA responded by boosting their marketing year average for soybean prices. Um, compared to the September forecast, they boosted it 55 cents a bushel to 980. Um, that compares to 857 in the, for the 2019 crop. So a dollar 23 above last year's marketing year estimate. And really, over the last uh, two months, I mean, uh, they boosted corn price uh, marketing year average estimate by 50 cents a bushel. Uh, this was an even bigger increase for soybeans. So it's been a dramatic change in a short span of time. And that leaves us at the highest level since 2014. So we're back, you're back at that 2014 year where the stock use was really low. Yeah, good point. So on the storage opportunities, the picture looks a lot different for soybeans. And I guess uh, as I look at it, uh, really the key is the fact that uh, the market has been inverted for soybeans. And this is fluctuating, so you have to monitor this. But, you know, when we were looking at this Friday afternoon, I think November was priced uh, basically even money with January. And then as you got out to March, May, July, those, those contracts were at a significant discount to the nearby contracts. And so that's really a situation where the marketplace is really sending a pretty strong signal that longer term storage is not a good proposition for soybeans. And uh, given the strength we've seen in both futures and cash prices this fall, providing a strong incentive to, to pull, some trigger, pull the trigger on some sales. Um, if you look at the basis information, the basis patterns for soybeans are a little different than corn. Uh, again, looking here at North Central Indiana, basis stronger than last year. That's not real surprising, but uh, that does contribute to that. You know, as you think about what's, what's likely to happen uh, down the road, our forecast would typically be keyed off of what the average has been with basis this fall stronger than average. Um, it makes those storage prospects look pretty weak. You put that combination of uh, inverted futures market together with expectations for maybe less improvement than normal in soybean basis, and that really doesn't make soybean storage very attractive at all. So really marketplace providing a pretty strong incentive to move soybeans here, um, at least price them here uh, in the short run, whether you deliver them this fall or, or perhaps delay delivery to January, but nevertheless, uh, market providing an incentive to, to sell those beans sooner rather than later. Many so farms you've like to spread out their cash flow uh, and for uh, cash flow and also for tax management purposes, uh, sell some of their crop in the fall and, and some of their crop in the spring. I, I think if you look at the corn and soybean situation as a portfolio, it looks to me, Jim, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it would behoove people to look at selling quite a few soybeans in the fall and maybe storing that, storing more of the corn to the spring. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I guess that's a good point. Um, again, based on some of the research that, that uh, Nathan Thompson has done, one of the things we've been talking about in some of our marketing seminars has been this portfolio idea, recognizing that we can't forecast with a high degree of accuracy exactly what's going to happen. So you want to allocate uh, different portions of your uh, production to different uh, marketing strategies. And one component of that strategy for soybeans has been historically storing some of your soybeans unpriced into the spring has been a pretty good strategy for at least a portion of your production. This looks like a year when that might not be a good strategy. Uh, the market's providing a pretty strong incentive to move those soybeans sooner rather than later. So if you choose to keep some of those beans in that unpriced scenario, that unpriced marketing strategy as part of your portfolio of marketing decisions, 
you might want to keep that a little smaller than you typically do, uh, recognizing that the market is providing such a strong incentive to move that, move those soybeans sooner rather than later. Well, you've taken a look at some revised farm income projections based on the uh, the case farm that you maintain uh, to track income and expenses here in, in uh, West Central Indiana. So, Michael, why don't you share those results with us? Yeah, a couple of things I think are really important. Net farm income per acre, it's right at about $100 right now. It's projected to be the highest since 2013. Uh, let me say that again. Uh, net farm income per acre uh, in 2020 is projected to be the highest since 2013. And that's changed so much in the last two, three months as we've seen the strengthening of, of both corn and soybean prices, because this is a corn soybean uh, farm, uh, essentially. Um, and, and why is that really important? Well, I think for obvious reasons, net farm income is used to repay debt. Uh, it's, also, it's also used to pay for unpaid uh, operator and family labor. And it's also used to, to potentially uh, look at uh, buying additional assets. And so, and so one of the things that, that really this is really going to allow, uh, I, I think, is, is to uh, replenish uh, some working capital that's been, de- that's been deteriorated in the last four or five years. Yeah, that's a good point. It really does create an opportunity to do that. Now, we've seen some improvement in optimism among farmers on our uh, Ag Economy Barometer Survey, and people have indicated that they are more willing to consider making large investments in their farming operation, and and, uh, more people are willing to uh, make, um, you know, I would characterize it perhaps as typical investments in farm machinery or farm machinery purchases, much more so than earlier in the spring. But I think it's important to look at your individual situation and think about where those funds are best invested. And uh, you know, for many farms, the opportunity to rebuild uh, working capital is uh, probably of paramount importance. The other thing, Michael, I, I, as I think about your income projections, um, you know, a chunk of that income is coming out of the government program payments. You might talk about that a little bit. Yes, that's coming primarily from the the the, the CFAP payments or, the, or from the CARES Act. Uh, there was both a, both a, uh, a CARES Act payment that, that was announced in May and then a recent announcement in mid-September. Uh, that's, that's the vast majority uh, of the payments uh, coming, from, from, coming from the government uh, this year. There, will be a, there looks like there will be a small uh, PLC payment uh, and a, a small ARC County payment for last year for soybeans. Uh, looking into 2021, uh, I think the, I think the, uh, pay, the ARC County and PLC payments are going to be really small. And so one of the concerns for 2021 is, is some of these government payments we've been receiving in 2018, 2019, and 2020 may not be there. And so again, uh, preserving some of that net farm income in 2020 uh, and, and, and keeping that in working capital might be very prudent. Yeah, so looking at uh, your projections, Michael, as I look at the net farm income uh, values that you've got, um, you mentioned it's as high as we've been since 2013. But actually, if you look at net farm income, really the last two years have been surprisingly good, but a big chunk of that coming out of government payments. And the risk going forward is in 2021, looking at current projections for fall uh, 2021 crop prices, and assuming we don't see something unusual happen as we've seen in the last several years between the MFP program and the CFAP program, or CFAP program, uh, it looks like farm income next year could drop back substantially compared to what we're currently projecting for 2020. And so that's another reason to think 
about preserving working capital or rebuilding working capital uh, this year as opposed to maybe make some bigger investments? It, and let's go back to something you talked about earlier. It, it's it's really due to the fact that the, the short-term uh, soybean futures are much stronger than the long-term soybean futures. And so when you start looking at soybean futures, November 2021, you're not looking at near as good a price as we're, as we're looking at for the current crop. And, and, and that's very important to think about uh, when you're developing budgets for 2021. Yeah, good point. One other way we can look at profit is the, is the profit margin, and it's very consistent with net farm income like, like you'd expect. Uh, it is relatively strong uh, compared to what it has been the last four or five years. I think it's very important to point out, uh, and that's why we've been talking about uh, the importance of replenishing working capital, is the profit margin is still below uh, the average from 2007 uh, to 2020. Yeah, that's a good point, Michael. It it is an improvement, though, relative even to these last couple of years, which we just mentioned were were probably better than than uh, certainly we were anticipating without the government program payments. But again, looking at twenty twenty one, the picture could change substantially, right? Yeah, it does not look very good for twenty twenty one. It's still positive. Uh, if you have a positive profit margin, that means you're covering any unpaid family and operator labor, but it doesn't leave you very much margin uh, to repay debt and for other uses if that margin is really tiny. And right now we're looking at a profit margin uh, that's projected to be below 5% for 2021. So one of the things that you like to keep track of is the net return prospects for corn and soybeans, not only for the current year, but also looking ahead and uh, this has changed substantially in these last two months, right? Yes, and it could change again. Uh, for the, uh, if you think about the 2021, before we get to 2021, uh, let's talk about 2020. Uh, the 2020 uh, difference between corn and soybeans is certainly uh, advantageous towards soybeans, and that advantage has really increased. It was below $50 uh, two, three months ago. Now that uh, that difference is about $80 uh, to the advantage of soybeans. And so, in other words, uh, soybeans look like they're going to have about $80 higher per acre uh, earnings than corn. In fact, uh, when I did my when I did my uh, uh, crunching uh, for soybean uh, profitability, it looks like soybeans might actually earn an economic profit. What we mean by that is not only are we covering cash costs, we're also covering opportunity costs on land if we own the land and own machinery. And so that's really saying something. Uh, to have a situation where the economic profit for soybeans is actually positive in 2020. Uh, looking at 2021, uh, uh, partly due for the uh, uh, related to something we said earlier that the soybean price uh, going out into the fall of 2021 is not as good as what the current uh, uh, current situation uh, appears to be. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot closer uh, parity between corn and soybean profitability. Uh, my latest estimate is there really is essentially no difference between the net return prospects for corn and soybeans in 2021. Now this could change many times uh, before planting. Uh, we'll be, we'll be uh, continuing to update this slide and, and reporting uh, whether corn or soybeans are more profitable uh, for 2021. You know, looking at uh, your analysis, Michael, it's interesting. Soybeans have been more profitable here in Indiana uh, going back to 2013, with the only exception being 2019. And of course, prior to that, from 07 to 12, it was the opposite. Corn was more profitable than soybeans, but we've really seen a swing here. And so 2021, if it turns out to be kind of a toss up, that alone would be a change, right? Definitely. And in the last several years, we've, we've, we've planted more soybeans than corn. 
uh, by several hundred thousand acres. And uh, we could see a situation easily in 2021 where it's more even, uh, same similar acreage to both corn and soybeans. All right, well, with those revised income projections, the next uh, thing to think about is what are the implications for land values and cash rental rates? Yeah, if we were to, if we would have looked at a similar uh, chart or similar information two, three months ago, uh, we were we were indicating that there was a severe downward pressure on 2020 cash rent. Why? Well, the net return to land uh, two, three months ago looked like it was only going to be $100 per acre. That compares to a cash rent uh, for West Central Indiana that's closer to $250 per acre for average productivity soil. Uh, that situation has changed completely. Uh, not, now we're looking at a situation where uh, the net return to land is very similar uh, to the to the cash rent, right at about $250 per acre. And so this downward pressure on 2021 cash rent has evaporated. Um, now, uh, having said that, I don't think there's a lot of impetus uh, for cash rents to necessarily increase this year. Uh, and the reason for that is if you look at the five-year average uh, relationship between cash rent and net return to land, the net return to land is still quite a bit lower uh, than, than the, the five-year average cash rent. This suggests that, uh, that more stable cash rents. It's a dramatic change though, right? And uh, you know, I was looking at your analysis earlier, Michael, and, and uh, that gap between 2020 cash rent and the projected net return to land was so big earlier in the summer and now basically that net return to land is pretty much equal to the cash rent for 2020. So what a swing, I think, going back to probably our June webinar when we were talking about this earlier, uh, it really has changed pretty dramatically over time. And, and um, it's probably gonna make for some interesting discussions with landlords this, uh, this fall and winter. Definitely, and and you know, and like I said, you you can't really base your decision on on one year, and so the difficult discussion is: yes, twenty twenty looks like it's going to be a pretty good year. What do we think twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two? Some of those some of those future years are going to look like. Are they going to look like twenty twenty, or they're going to look more like uh, two thousand fifteen to two thousand nineteen? And at least based on our initial uh, initial estimates, it looks like twenty twenty one is going to look more like two thousand fifteen to two thousand nineteen. Yeah. So I think the other thing I think about when I look at this analysis, Michael, is it makes me realize or think about the fact that it really makes some kind of a risk sharing rental arrangement uh, look more attractive because these swings and returns have been pretty large over short spans of time. And it's difficult to accommodate that in a fixed cash rental arrangement, whereas uh, some kind of a flex rent uh, program could uh, provide some automatic adjustments, uh, both up and down that are equitable for both parties. And so the nice, I know there's the nice been a lot about, of talk about that. Yeah, nice thing about flex rent is it really is something in between a share rent that's, that's pretty risky for landlords, particularly for some landlords. It it's causes too much variability. They're not comfortable with that much variability and that fixed cash rent. Uh, and, and essentially what it does is you, can, you, lo you lower the base rent uh, from the market cash rent. And then if revenue is really high, you actually receive a bonus. And so let's say yield price or both are really high in 2021, uh, the landlord receive, receive a base rent, uh, which, is also, which is typically 90%, approximately 90% of the market cash rent. And they would receive that base rent plus a bonus if, if prices are relatively high or, or yields are relatively high or both. 
2021. And so, uh, as you indicated, when you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty, uh, the flex rent really does have a place. Yeah, and you think about what's taking place here in Indiana. We're looking at very strong yields uh, in most locations, combined with some relatively strong prices. And that's really changed that picture in a pretty short span of time. And there's just no way to do that, uh, no way to deal with that with a fixed cash rental arrangement, whereas uh, some kind of a flex arrangement could take care of that adjustment automatically in a, in a way that's relatively equitable for, for both parties. So, well, Michael, that kind of wraps up our discussion for this month. And um, I encourage you to share the Purdue Commercial Ag podcast with your friends and colleagues. And so, on behalf of my colleague, Michael Langemer and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thanks for listening. 